welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update in episode 105. Let me just say this right at the outset of this episode. I've got an interview on this week and the audio is not the best quality. I often have multiple backups running for recordings in case things like this happen. In this particular instance, though, the high quality ones failed and the less than stellar quality backup is the one that remained. This week, I'm bringing back a guest and I've got Tom Richards from the Woodyard. The Woodyard is located down in Georgia near Savannah. They're in Concord, Georgia. And a while back, I had asked you guys to let me know who your favorite lumber yard is. And I lost count of the number of people that reached out to me and said the Woodyard is the place to go. So no offense to Tom and his uh, his staff there. The Woodyard is not uh, a lumberyard that specializes in one thing or another. They're not uh, a yard that you can look at and say, these are the flooring guys or these are the slab guys. Frankly, they're your typical retail lumberyard. But what makes them atypical and this is where all the feedback came from, is the incredible customer service that they offer. And I just had a blast talking with Tom and understanding his business, but more importantly, understanding how in tune he is with his customers and how he treats his customers. And honestly, one of the things that's really interesting about the Woodyard, they're all woodworkers. You would be surprised how many people in the lumber industry do not work wood. In fact, the only working of wood they do is moving it around with a forklift. And as you can imagine, that makes them pretty special when it comes to servicing the needs of the average woodworker. So let me just say thewoodyard.com. That's their website. If you want to follow them on Instagram, they are at thewoodyardga. In other words, the Woodyard Georgia. Check them out. More importantly, if you're in Georgia or anywhere near Concord, Georgia, I highly recommend you go check these guys out. Just wow. It's just so great to see this level of customer service and really dispelling a lot of the kind of crotchety lumber yard stories that you hear about all the time. So without further ado, welcome Tom and the Woodyard. Everybody, I've got a new lumber yard with us today. I have Tom Richards from the Woodyard. And the Woodyard is down in Georgia, uh, Concord, Georgia. I think you guys are about, uh, I don't know, south central Georgia. Um, Tom, is that right? So, yeah, you know, an hour from Atlanta, an hour from Macon. So, right in the center, just uh, west of the interstate. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Uh, out in God's country out there. So, I, uh, the Woodyard was brought to my attention. Um, uh, listeners may remember I've often said, hey, send me your favorite lumber yard or send me a yard you think I should talk to. And uh, I can think of three or four instances where people brought up the wood yard and said, this is possibly the friendliest lumber yard I've ever been to. So I was intrigued. Um, you all know how I've, I've shared stories of, of the lumber yard horror stories from the past and, you know, not getting what you're looking for or feeling like you're like inconveniencing the guy working there. So it's always nice to hear positive customer service stories. So Tom, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you here. Yes, sir. I appreciate it, Shannon. So let's let's do kind of what I always do here. Let's talk a little bit about the the origins. How long have you guys been in business, and how did you get started? So I, I'm actually not the original owner, but I've been involved since the beginning. Uh, this business was started by Rick Wood. Uh, started back in 2009, kind of as a hobby for him. Just love woodworking. Um, and at this, on the same, at the same time, I started a custom fabrication 
uh, wood versus metal business. Um, so I was a customer for many, many years uh, from Rick. And um, that's kind of how he started that over in Griffin. So about 19 miles from here is where the original store was. And we've been in this location in Concord for about 10 years. Um, so uh, Rick, I told Rick many years ago that if he ever got ready to sell and we stayed friends and he liked me enough, I'd be want to be considered to buy the business. So um, he had another gentleman uh, named Paul Carter that started as a home builder turned custom cabinet business. And he and I came in together and bought this business from Rick and kind of just tried to improve on what Rick had already done. So, you know, we're going on about 13 years uh, now, uh, 10 of it here in Concord and, and got a pretty good following coming. So we're going to, you know, keep, keep going in the same direction we're going in and try and try and build from the good ideas from the past. Sure. So tell me a little bit about your operation now. What what kind of services do you offer? What's your inventory look like? Just uh, how would you characterize the wood yard uh, as compared to, you know, the hundreds of other lumber yards? Sure, sure. Well, you know, talking to you uh, earlier, it's um, we try to do more of an a la carte business on services. So I have a lot of hobbyists. I have builders. I have makers. And I have just regular old Joe Blow off the street, you know, that come in. So if a maker comes in and they're really busy and they want us just to do uh, processing, whether it be planning and joining, and then they get to wood and do the project from there, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. If, you know, the the customer off the street comes in and says, uh, hey, I saw this uh, Pinterest table. I I want to find somebody to build it and we'll help them pick out the lumber. We can process the lumber. Flat, we got flattening machines for big slabs and tabletops, so we can uh, flatten both sides. We got a finishing department; we can finish everything in. We got plywood building, so it's you know kind of really whatever the customer wants. We try not to say no to, uh, which is getting hard to find. You know, really hard to find. Um, exactly, exactly. And in many instances, never existed. That's <laughs> true. Um, That's true. You know, so what, one what, might say you are the next generation of lumberyard. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to think so. You know, the, the I'll tell you where we really concentrated from the very beginning is we're, we're all woodworkers. There's five of us here on the team, mm-hmm. um, and we've shopped at other places. You know, not not just here or before here. We shopped at other places. Um, you know, and we wanted to be different. So when a customer comes in. Um, say I have a thousand board feet of walnut on the floor, we actually encourage the customer to pick through the stack and get what they want, not just uh-huh. pick the ones off the top. Right. You know, yeah, that's so different. I, I get, I get pretty much all of my material is skip plane, one straight edge. So you got something to start with. Everything's not rough. Um, mm-hmm. And then we offer any cutting to length for travel or if, Somebody comes in, there's a 12-foot board they like, but they only need 10 foot of it. I cut the two foot off. They only pay for what they take. I got a spot in the store. We'll put all the shorts for other people to buy for smaller projects. So Interesting. Yeah, we kind of cut it cut it for the job, cut it for the customer. Um, you know, if it gets into spending a bunch of time, we do charge for milling services uh, also. Um, but that's I think that's where the our customer service lies is, you know, you kind of tell us what, what you want. I'm not going to show you just what I want you to pick through. You can see everything I got in stock, and you can pick out exactly what piece you want for your, your project. 
you know? Yeah, and it's one of those things where there's always somebody out there who wants that two-foot board or that one-foot exactly. board. You know, there's, exactly. there's somebody that can use it. And it's just a matter of tapping into that market. You know what? The, the expression using the whole buffalo. Um, you know, there's, there's all this stuff. And, and maybe there's splits. There's kiln, kiln defect on that last one foot. But, you know, it's an eight-inch eight, eight inch wide board. You know, there's still things that can come out of that. It's an understanding of, of, of finding that particular market. Now, that can be tough as, as a, you know, as a business owner. Uh, so then what happens to your turn rate at that point? You got, you know, a bunch of two foot boards sitting over in the corner. Um, do you have uh, like plan B's or mechanisms for like suddenly that pile has gotten, no, you know, unwieldy? Um, do, you, do, you, do you have a plan B for what to do when that starts just to get out of control, I guess? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, and a couple of things come to mind, uh, you know, cutting boards, security boards have gotten so popular. We're starting mm -hmm. to band those up into smaller kits, but it may be a board of, uh, or a, a shrink wrap kit of just walnut pieces, strips, uh, mm -hmm. or just maple pieces. We'll put those on the shelf and on the shelf and sell those as kits. Um, we do have a school in Macon that we work closely with, with their, um, uh, FFA program. So okay, yeah. some of the longer, like if we're doing a tabletop project and I have a bunch of ash or something like that left over, we save that and they'll come up and we just donate that to the class uh, for them to use okay. in their woodworking. And uh, they've won ribbons and, and all kinds of stuff using some of the scraps and all we've, we've given them in the past, which is pretty neat. You know? Fantastic. Oh, and by the way, maybe some future employees coming out. There you that. go. There you go. <laughs> You know, you and I both know what this labor market looks like. So yeah, um, that's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. See, and, and that's uh, kind of what I was hoping to hear from you in this instance is it's just kind of make it work, you know, yeah. and, and an understanding of the customer base and, and, and what they what they want, and what they need. Right. There's a couple of things I want to pick apart in what you've said. Um, yeah. So is everything you're selling surface to some extent or, or more? Let me rephrase that. Do you sell any rough saw material anymore? So I do get rough in uh, on occasion, um, not a whole lot anymore, to be honest with you. It's, uh, yeah. I'm getting more and more of the more modern customer is what we call it, that, you know, don't go out and buy the, you know, $15,000 worth of tools you need to really process the lumber to start making. <laughs> so, so we're trying to yeah, take some out of it, you know. Yeah, that's that's the wonderful thing about woodworking, right? Well, I got into woodworking so that I didn't have to pay all that money to buy for, to buy store bought furniture. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, your garage is about you know fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth of stuff. In there. Exactly. Exactly. But, yeah. You're, and, and you're probably still not building a table that's cheaper than what you could have bought down at the store more than exactly. likely. But for sure. For see, sure. And, and this is this is a professional curiosity more than anything. And forget the listeners right now. I'm I, I as a, as a you know director of marketing for a lumber company, I'm seeing the same thing where the rough saw and stuff is is becoming kind of a thing of the past. More and more of our customers are wanting us to surface it. So like you know the the thing that the the material that you're bringing in. Um, you know, more than likely you're buying it from a company like the one that I work for. Um, right. And we're doing a lot of that surfacing or at least, you know, straight line ripping or something to that effect and, and sending that material out to uh, retailers and builders and things like that. And that does seem to be the trend more than anything these days. It does. And it's it does. Good, kind of good to hear that, that affirmation there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the next thing is you'd said it before and you were talking just in how you got started. You know, you guys are all woodworkers there, which, uh, believe it or not, is not all that common. 
Uh, I've run into a lot of lumber yards where, you know, they're lumber workers um, and, and maybe they're mill workers. You know, they, they can they can run a planer, possibly a joiner, um, straight line ripsaw or something like that. But they don't actually do anything with their material. They don't build furniture. They don't understand sometimes the importance of grain and color selection and composing a table or a chest of drawers or something like that. And I think um, the fact that you guys kind of get that uh, certainly, well, you are your customer. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah, we, we have to Being think like ourselves sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, right. That's fantastic. Yeah. So um, the next thing is, um, what kind of um, what kind of inventory do you, or what are your kind of your popular species? But tell me a little bit about your inventory. Sure, sure. So. I, I don't know if I, I probably in Georgia, we carry more exotics than, than anyone where I'm really after the, I want to carry more exotics than anybody in the Southeast. Um, but since I haven't physically been to every store that sells them yet, I can't say that uh, to date. But uh, speaking of, of space, we have about 10,000 square feet of retail, um, okay. which is split in half. So I got about 5,000 of all exotics. Um, we get them in longer sections, you know, eight to 16 feet, but then we mm-hmm. will, um, S three, you know, one, one straight side and, and double plane everything down when it comes in and we put it on a rack and we'll cut those pieces, uh, one to six foot and we'll just random put them in there. I may have two one footers and a two footer and, you know, three, four, five, six, and all of that's available to pick through in those smaller sections. And then if anybody needs a longer board, we'll pull a longer board and process that for them here. Um, sure. in, in that same room, we have live edge slabs around the perimeter of that, of that room, which is, you know, the room's probably, uh, you know, 50 by hundred close to it, you know? Um, and then we also buy, uh, full bull. So I'll get a, you know, a full log of black limba or Paduke or, uh, you know, curly redwood or something like that. And we'll put the whole log up there cut, um, but in rough form. And we'll just plane the top piece so you can see what it is. And then people can pick out which one they'd like to have for a project, you know, Fantastic. Um, really, really wide, wide range there. I love, I love the shorter things that you're doing, especially in the exotics because well, they're expensive. Right. Uh, I, I feel like, and this, this is me, um, I'm going to turn into the crotchy old woodworker at this point, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> since we have so much global access to so many species now, I find that like a lot of newer woodworkers kind of get overwhelmed and they, they go a little crazy and they don't edit. And I think, you know, they go into a store like yours and they're like, Oh wow, here's some purple heart. No, nah, here's some, you know, Michiche and some Limba and I'm going to buy this and buy that. And put it all into the same project and out comes this box. And I say this, I can say this because I've done it um, myself. You got this box with six different species in it. And you're like, good Lord, what did you just create? Like, Oh my God. But at the same time, like those smaller pieces, you know, if you've got that, that piece of black limbo running across as an accent piece on that chest of drawers or down the center of that table, it makes it, you know, it's beautiful. Um, and there's no reason to go buy a whole board of it when ultimately, you know, they're just looking for that, that little accent. That's a fantastic feature that honestly, I've only ever seen go into places like Woodcraft or Rockler, you know, where they've got that little bin of a three eighths or whatever, uh, plane down. Um, 
there's very few yards I know. I can think of maybe you can count them on one hand where you're buying anything other than the full boards, you know, stacked, you know, into, into the wall. Uh, the, the, well, most of them are ingrained facing out and long bends, eight, 10 feet deep or whatever. You know, every now and then you run into a yard that has like an off cut section, like you were talking about earlier. And then even fewer have that kind of intermediary, like specifically curated collection where, sure. you know, you've got four foots and, and, and ripped edges and things like that. That's, um, this is a woodworker's kind of dream to be able to kind of pick through a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of that, to be honest with you, Shannon, probably revolves around being able to ship it easily. So if I have somebody that calls uh, and says, Hey, I need three board feet of purple heart. I can take a quick photo of a board. That's pretty close to three board feet already cut processed, shoot him a picture. He'll tell me right then whether he wants it or not. I can throw it in a, in a box, you know, and send it out UPS or FedEx or whatever, you know, to get to them. So. That's kind of where that's my next next question. Yeah. Uh, I was curious to see, uh, because I was looking through your website and kind of looking at some of the images. And for folks that uh, I haven't said this yet, it's thewoodyard.com. And as you were kind of walking me through your your showroom, I was actually looking at the pictures on the website and kind of visualizing it as well. And um, you have, uh, you know, FedEx logo on here and you've got, you know, the the typical credit card logos, but it, it immediately made me wonder. You know, I'm up in Maryland. Um, I'm looking at a couple pieces that look real pretty. Uh, <laughs> you know, obviously shipping is something that that you look at as well. Um, is there any kind of limitation to that? I mean, I imagine international is pretty tough, but um, yeah, international. Is tough, but uh, yeah, I mean, we we ship all the time. It's um, uh, we also do some iron projects, not to get away from wood, but you know, so some of that stuff goes freight. So if somebody wanted a slab, we picked out a slab in here. Uh, we'll ship slabs, you know, with LTL carriers as well. We deal with forwarders, so we kind of pick the best lane. Uh, and then we also have, you know, uh, pricing set up with FedEx and UPS. So we try to stay under that 48-inch mark because then you can start hitting you pretty hard with the overages um, on exotics or domestic. So if we can stay in that, um, you know, mathematical formula give you, it kind of – it doesn't get too bad. We send – I sent out – 10 board feet of leopard wood the other day and it cost us about $42, you know, charge a customer right at 40, $42 and change to get it. So mm-hmm. it worked out pretty good. Yeah. Sounds about right. So, um, you are, you are not a sawmill, correct? You're buying all your material already sawn into boards, right? Yes and no. <laughs> uh, all right. I like that. I'm intrigued. So sawmilling, uh, I'll tell you what I do. There, there's so many, um, wood miser guys around our area. We have a wood miser shop out of Noonan, Georgia. Um, so there's a lot of those sawmills around here. Um, all of the domestic wood lumber, we buy all of it. It's all graded. I can tell you what grade it is. You know, you've talked about grading on your show in the past. Um, so I, we, we only carry FAS and up material. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody wants number one, number two common, I don't mind ordering it. I just don't keep it on the floor. Um, in saying that, we don't want to get into cutting lumber. So I actually have a couple of guys that we have done business with for years. They will come to the store once every other month. I'll pay them for an entire day to spend the day here. And then any customer that's got a small project, small log, small stump, they want to bring to have cut on that day, they'll come drop it off and we fill up the backyard until I can't hold it anymore. And then we'll set up a day. For him to come cut 
Um, so most, you know, most sawmill guys like that, they want to work either half a day or full day. But most of the mm-hmm. people we talk to say, hey, I just got this one piece I want to cut in half, you know, or I, right. I need to open this up so I can get me a match pair for my guitar or something like that, you know, and don't have a big enough band mill to do it. Um, so, but we do own a Lucas mill, a dedicated slab mill. So I do cut our own slabs, not all of them, but some of them right. we do cut ourselves, and we've got an eye dry kiln vacuum kiln that we also dry most of our slabs when we buy our slabs if it's a domestic wood we buy it wet and we dry it so i can control that process sure yeah, yeah. good you you answer one of my next questions there now i think i've done a lot of i've had a lot of conversations with um kind of the grassroots sawing industry the wood miser owners and the lucas mill owners and talked a lot about urban logging and and kind of reclaiming that waste stream and this is particularly interesting. This is this is another wrinkle that you're talking about here, where you've got an established lumberyard. And, and I joke, like here are the the grassroots guys are on the wood misers. They're kind of the subversive movement. And then we've got the man, you know, <laughs> the commercial lumberyard. Um, you're actually reaching out and kind of embracing that subversive movement and giving them uh, a place, you know, to to receive customers, to do the job, to also, you know, it's a business card for them as well. This is. If I, if, if I may uh, compliment you, this is brilliant um, to, to really harness that local network you have, provide a service to your customers, but also like, I mean, this is a, this is a resource for you as they're sawing things up. Uh, a lot of these, these wood miser owners I talk to as they start to get more successful, especially when it comes to successful at sourcing, they suddenly run into a point where they got more lumber than they know what to do with. And exactly. they're trying to figure out how they can sell it to more than just the, the Joe woodworker that comes in looking for, you know, project lumber and they start to figure out how can I turn this around and sell it to somebody who then resells it. So you kind of headed them off at the past there and provided a a, a network for that, which I think is, I think it's the future of our industry, frankly. Um, We have so many resources. Well, the the global issue is there's a lot of uh, focus putting back on domestic wood, you know, for, for better or for worse, environmental, political, whatever, there's a lot of kind of stigma that's starting to be attached to the exotics. And, and believe me, I work for a company that's 60% exotic these days. Um, and it's a very, very tough marketplace to navigate. Uh, and you got to have a lot of experience and a lot of know-how just to buy in that market and do it sustainably. Right. So more and more of the builders and architects I talk to are just kind of sidestepping the whole issue or their customers don't want anything to do with it. You know. Right. Whether it's a you know completely sustainably harvested piece of Brazilian wood or not, it's from Brazil. So they think rainforest wood and think, nope, I want domestic. So now we've had this this development in the industry where you know COVID brought it to a head and shut down a lot of sawmills. Um, our near inventory on domestics in North America is lower than it's ever been before. But at the same time, you got these wood miser owners. Uh, and, you know, we say wood miser like Band-Aid, you know, like it, it's actually a brand. You know, there's, there's other sawmills out there. Um, but the, these guys are producing this lumber and they're they're taking stuff that was bound for a landfill or bound for mulch and turning it into really beautiful stuff. And it's starting to get noticed by builders and designers and architects and certainly woodworkers and makers. And what we need now is to turn that corner and find a way to make that marketplace accept, um, accessible to yes. all these people yes. wanting to use it. And right. 
to be able to take that, you know, uh, that guy with a, a wood miser attached to the back of his pickup truck um, and tie, connect that into an existing established network of here's a retail establishment, that's kind of the next step. So, um, and I say this knowing full well that if you start buying all your lumber from the guy that owns the wood miser, you put my company into it. A right. bit of a tough spot because <laughs> you know we are the existing supply chain. Um, there will always be a place for the the large supply chain companies like the one I work for, but I just think that's exciting. Um, as a woodworker, as a as a you know custodian of this planet, I think that's really exciting to see that kind of uh, that kind of change. So sorry, I, I'm going off on a bit of a passionate rant here, but it's just exciting <laughs> to see that type of thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on connecting those dots. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Trying to, um, trying to put so, all the pieces together, you know? So. Sure, sure. So let, let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. You do have exotics. Um, and I am often coaching people. Uh, I'm, I'm very quick uh, to, to say, look, let's not condemn the exotics. Let's just ask more questions. Um, the beautiful thing about the exotic marketplace is it is heavily regulated. And you can't just show up and buy a bunch of lumber. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Um, it is not Craigslist. And oftentimes those that are selling exotic lumber may not know the full supply chain, but they probably can make a phone call to the guy they bought it from and they right. can figure that out pretty quickly. Absolutely. So um, to the consumer, to the average woodworker, to the architect even, um, when they have concerns about, well, where did this, you know, Perota or Ipe or, or, you know, Canberra or wherever, where did it come from? And and how do I know that this wasn't, you know, uh, rape from the forest? <laughs> if you must, you know, whatever term you want to use there. And I'm always saying, let's just ask some questions, guys. Like, um, where, you know, wh where did you get the material? So I guess the, the the question to me is, if a customer comes into you and does have these concerns, mm -hmm. sustainability concerns, um, how can you address them? I don't want to put you on the spot here, but you know, um, certainly, no, absolutely, no, we, we think about the same thing and we do get these questions asked, you know, and and yeah. sometimes you have to give them just the organizations that you deal with so they can do all of the homework they want to do. But to be honest with you, if if we only deal with with reputable companies, you know, mm -hmm. um, so pretty much anybody that we would get any exotic from, you know, overseas and even some domestic stuff, you're dealing with either. Uh, you know, a sites organization or a PEFC mm -hmm. or a FSC, you know. Um, so, you know, if you want me to break all those downs, it's, you know, the PEFCs, the, the program for endorsement of forestry. Um, mm -hmm. The sites is the convention of the International Trade and Endangered Species Act, you know. So that that keeps up with, OK, is is this one starting to tighten up? You know, Paduke was actually just put on. In uh, yeah, February, yeah. I believe, you know, um, so then th that stuff starts to tighten up in other ways where you got other appendixes that you got to know about. You know, is it is it really on where they're just going to only send it to sites approved, um, you know, processors to cut or are they going to stop exporting it? You know, 100 percent. You know, there, there's a lot to it, but we we do kind of train all of our guys to know those aspects. We try to do follow the chain of custody to see, you know, like olive wood I get in comes from one town. All of my olive wood comes from Calabria, Italy. 
And anybody that comes to ask about it, I can tell them because I we ask those questions for my distributors. We make sure that all of them are part of these organizations that want it because we want it to last. We don't want it to go away. You know, right? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the true irony. You know, you, you get you know you're in the lumber industry, you're raping the planet. No, actually, we're the ones who have the vested interest in keeping it going. Right? That's how we make our money. You know, yeah, it's, we don't it's want a, to go out of business. You know, we, got, we got a lot of mouths to feed on our end too. You know, so it's right. it's, yeah. it's 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 we want it to be around for everybody, including ourselves, because we we love doing it too. You know. Sure. Sure. Now uh, I, I gotta ask because you distracted me by saying olive wood. Um, uh, you have some in stock right now? I do. I do. I got about five hundred feet. But I but I be honest with you, I love that species. I <laughs> only carry it in the in the live edge slabs. I don't. I yeah. don't lumber lumber. You know. Well, it's interesting, and, and since you've got kind of a well, let's just use it as a case study. Since you've got a good understanding of your chain of custody there. Olive wood has always been an interesting species because certainly it is it is a um, it is a fruit tree. Well, um, you know it's grown specifically for its fruit, and it grown and, and grows just like you would expect peaches and apples and things like that. So rarely do we get lumber from it other than the prunings. You know, so it's a lot of branch wood and things like that. Right. So um, when you're buying it in slab form. How do those come to be? Like, um, I don't know anything about the olive industry. Like, is there a certain point where the tree is just no good and they end up cutting it down and planting another one? How do you actually end up with a full tree? Yeah, I actually had the same question when we first started buying a lot of olive wood. You know, we started out just buying a little bit for people to try and as it gets more and more popular. So from from uh, my distributor, I've got a distributor in Canada that, that imports this for us. And uh, I asked him the same question. And when he tells me, that basically it's either going to be, you know, um, pruned, like you say, you know, as, as their growth goes on, but a lot of it will come from end of life. You know, maybe uh, it stops producing or stops yielding what it needs to do for its footprint in life. And it's better for it to, you know, to be cut down for a new one to be put in its place. It's kind of where most of the stuff comes from. Um, it's nothing's huge, you know, in, in terms of olive wood. I've probably had a piece 30 inches wide, which I thought was huge for olive wood. Most of it's going to be, you know, probably seven to, to 13, 14 inches wide and six foot long yeah. pieces. But the, but in limbs, they turn, you know what I mean? So you couldn't you couldn't get a huge piece out of most of it because it's not it's going to turn so many directions. You wouldn't yield very many projects out of it. So, yeah, fairly enough, it's generally four turners. Um, right. Right. into vessels and pens and things like that. Yeah, 30 inches is enormous for hey, yeah, an olive tree. <laughs> an old olive tree right there. I, I don't, wow, I didn't even know they got that big. So that that's interesting, you know, and it's one of those things where um, you, you kind of hit it right on the head. You buy from people that are reputable, people that you've got a business relationship with. And it's funny because um, how big a part of all that is. Like my international buyer, uh, I mean, I work for a, a family-owned company that's seven generations deep. So, you know, talk about handing it down from one generation to the next. So we've been doing business with the same companies abroad for hundreds of years now. We're in our 225th anniversary this year. Wow. So we can actually, when you talk about, you know, we trust these people. Well, why? Well, because I've been doing business with them since before this was a country. You know, that's how long we've been doing business Yeah. You know, me, obviously not me personally, but my great grandfather did. And he introduced my grandfather to this guy. And, you know, and the same generations that hand it down on on the, uh, 
uh, you know, the company in some far-flung region of the world, the same type of situation. And ultimately, if, say, you got into a really serious inquiry and a customer's like, well, I really want to understand this chain of custody, it's there. Like, if you're buying it from a reputable dealer, it didn't get into the country, you know, if it's in the country, it's passed through customs. And let's, let's not be naive and assume that there's no way to get into the country not going through customs. Certainly that type of thing happens, but it happens a lot less these days than you would think. Um, I think a lot of the illegal logging that we see in the world ends up going to other places like China, primarily. Correct. Um, it's really hard to get lumber into the U.S. without having to go through customs. And once you go into customs, you've got U.S. Fish and Wildlife and U.S. Lacey Act backing it up, you know, and all that stuff. So if it's in the country, there is some paperwork. There is a chain of custody there. And if it's, you know, uh, something like Badoop, there's a CITES permit on the thing as well. Um, right. So... Uh, yeah, it's so it, uh, I'm kind of you've affirmed everything that I've been telling a lot of people. You just got to ask questions and you just sure. got to make sure, you know, that, that you're comfortable with the situation. And, and honestly, the U.S. Lacey Act, its actual verbiage is I have done my due diligence. Right. You have performed due diligence on your supplier. And it's one of those things where, unfortunately, it can be very open to interpretation on both sides of the coin. Uh, ask the Gibson guitar people how they feel about how well it was interpreted right. against them. Right. Um, you know, but but it's one of those things where if I'm buying from a guy and I don't have the warm fuzzies, you should walk away. I mean, that's really what U.S. Lacey is telling us. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of other things behind it there. But, yeah, it, it, it's tough for a lot of people to understand um, because it is so much of a I need to trust the person I'm doing business with. At some point, you, you want to see some proof, you know. Um, but when you're buying FSC, that's there. Like the credit system that FSC puts in place, the chain of custody numbers and all that stuff is in place to to provide that that traceability. And honestly, I think FSC, there's no other way to put this, um, they're probably the worst organization. And I don't mean that like what they're doing is bad, but there are so many other organizations that go further than FSC actually goes. Right. PEFC and, and uh, TLTV and a lot of other European standards go a lot deeper and a lot further into the weeds than FSC does. Um, and yet FSC, you know, I feel comfortable with that stuff. But when you're, when you're buying exotic material, a lot of times there's other certification schemas in place that don't have the notoriety that FSC does. So right. People are like, well, it's not FSC. And you have to say, well, no, it's not. It's actually better. Better. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I find that FSC is a little bit more of the low-hanging fruit. Um, it makes them sound like a, ter- a bad thing, but it's just kind of, you know, in the spectrum of things, I think there's a lot more comprehensive certification schemes there. Yeah, yeah. It's so, like being the standard, being above the standard, you know what I mean? So that's yeah, I mean. exactly. Yeah. yeah, like when you say FAS is better. <laughs> right. Technically, an HLA doesn't go higher than FAS, but yeah, we all sell FAS and better. I don't know who's uh, who's grading the better side of things, but yeah, it, it, yeah, FAS or NHLAC is one of those entities that, you know, they've slightly changed since the 1950s and only slightly. <laughs> right, kind of like, right. No one, you know, and now add in the slabs and add in the, the Woodmiser guys and how the heck do you grade that stuff? But it doesn't matter. People are buying it because it's pretty, you know, it's <laughs> a whole, whole other side of things. Yeah. So um, let's see here. I, I wanted to talk on, you've got something on your website that caught my attention. You've got a, a logo here for the Longleaf Alliance. Yep. What can you tell me about that? It says, we support the restoration of Longleaf Pine. Um, what's that about? 
So the Longleaf uh, Alliance was started in the mid nineties, 94, 95, if I remember correctly. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of that Longleaf pine was, was kind of harvested out, you know, and we, we almost lost it. So they, kind of jumped in. It was a, a pair of guys um, that jumped in to try and, you know, restore that part of the, our forest, you know, and our, our pine species, if you will. Um, so we've been a, a, a donator, you know. We don't get incredibly involved with their process. Um, mm-hmm. we, we back them. Um, we've done some projects with them. We donate every year. Um, you know, and it's – I don't know if it's for – I don't know if you do any hunting or fishing. I'm kind of an outdoorsy guy anyway. You know what I mean? Um, so it kind of, in the south here where we are in the Longleaf Pine was a lot of the uh, wild um, turkey habitat as mm-hmm. well. So that kind of hurt the southeast in our, our area for, for even that part of it. So, you know, um, we try to educate people if you will you know i mean they do most of the education but we we try to get everybody involved in the sustainability bringing this stuff you know the trees back planting more um my family's from south georgia vadosta area and we actually have planted several several acres in longleaf trying to get them back in that area you know um but not just for trees not just for harvesting but more of you know a habitat area that was kind of lost you know yeah, uh yeah. you know the trees are bigger they're straighter you got longer needles i mean there's a lot of aspects that's different to that and and, and that's where the alliance is after is, is just restoring that forest back to the southeast where it was almost just extinct just from building aspect really you know yeah and for those that, that aren't aware well i mean first of all the longleaf pine it's one of those just arrow straight long central stem or trunk so it got used a lot in uh, everything from the railroad industry, but the shipbuilding industry, a lot of spar work and things like that. But more importantly, um, you know, certainly we, we saw a lot of forestry for building purposes. But I think what hit the Longleaf Pine more than anything else was clearing for farmland, for agricultural yeah. land. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, you'd like to think that the wood that they cleared went to something. You know, they, they, they probably didn't mulch it up back then, but it was this this need to have more of a green belt. You know, we need to start feeding people. As the country grew, we needed more and more cropland. The problem was, um, you know, and, and this was, you know, early 1900s, 1920s, and there was a lot of rampant logging and not a lot of forethought. But honestly, as we got into like the World War II era and after that, these concession management plans were in place. We were not... Um, clear-cutting willy-nilly uh, in the middle of the, ni- uh, the 1900s, they'd figure that out. The problem was they didn't think about the species, and they started replanting pines, just generic pines, not specifically longleaf pines, um, and they were planting them because they were faster growing. They were trying to, re- to, to regrow a canopy, um, and they didn't really think about what species they were planting. And this is a more recent thing where people have been getting begun to assess what specific species we should plant and we don't really need to plant just because it grows fast and there's so many things about the longleaf pine specifically in its ability to resist forest fires and to sprout up um even stronger after a forest fire 
And, you know, these, these other trees that have been planted because they grow fast, they don't resist forest fires. Well, now we've got these huge problems with forest fires that, you know, you used to be able to let it go, but now there's too many people living there. You can't just let the forest fires go mad and nature can't kind of clear itself away. And, and now that we've kind of replaced the longleaf pine with other kind of not as uh, uh, well-performing species, it's a real issue. Um, and then, of course, you bring up the whole other uh, ecological system, the, the flora and the fauna that rely upon that kind of anchor. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting um, for me. You know, I, of course, if you ever work with longleaf pine, it's a beautiful pine to work with. Absolutely. Um, you could grump it into the southern, uh, group it into the southern pine. So those that have worked with southern yellow pine, you're going to have some similarities. But man, it is straight as an arrow. Um, and uh, when dried properly, it is hard. Uh, it's not your <laughs> not your average pine. You know, for me in the northeast, the mid Atlantic, it's not. It's, yeah, it's not that northeastern white pine that's like a 300 jank of hardness. It's a very different beast. And man, it's fun to work with. So, um, yeah, I think that's fantastic, you know, to, to uh, support an interview like that and make people aware that it's it's going on. So, yeah, kudos to that. Absolutely. Thank so you. Uh, I, I think we can um, kind of uh, land this plane, if you will. Um, and uh, let's uh, if I am in Georgia, uh, how do I find you guys? And uh, uh, tell me a little bit, you know, when you open and, and uh, how, how do I come buy some of your wood? Sure, sure. So during the week where somebody's pretty much here from 7.45 in the morning to 5 p.m. every day during the week, uh, we are open 8 to noon on Saturdays as well. So um, like you said earlier, a, a lot of our pictures show up on social media, not really on the website. It's a little bit harder to change websites these days, you know. Um, yeah. So we do have a um, newsletter that we don't bug you with, if, if that's something you can believe. Um, so people that sign up for our, our newsletter, all I send out is information based on what I think you need. And that is only when the, the fun stuff shows up for you to come shop. Um, <laughs> I, like so that. I, I don't do anything on a schedule. I do it based on what's happening at the wood yard. So when something new fun comes in, we, we put it on the, uh, mailer, we blast it out to all of the customers. We've probably got two or 3,000 customers signed up on there now. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, phone, email, our email store at thewoodyard.com, and the phone number is 770 468 8588. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I say, just between Macon and, and Atlanta, just west of the interstate, about 30 minutes. Fantastic. Well, I'll certainly be posting, you know, links to your website and everything, but. Folks, I mean, check out the website. They've got, you know, a bunch of different species listed, both domestic, um, exotic, certainly, some gorgeous slabs, kind of everything you're looking for. And just from talking to you, Tom, like kind of like a candy store, um, you're going to go and looking to buy some lumber for a project and you're probably going to find four or five other pieces that you're just going to want to buy just in case. That's my favorite kind of lumber yard right there. <laughs> and so, our price um, list I, is, is on the website too, Shannon. I don't know if you saw that, but I, we do keep that very updated on there as well. That's good to know. I see a lot of price lists on websites and they haven't been updated in quite some time. So right. uh, great, to, great to hear. Um, yes, it's also, uh, and honestly, folks, I get questions all the time about, you know, well, what do you think? Do you think this is a good price? And it's such a hard question to answer. And one of the best ways that I have done market research on this is looking at price lists on other websites. So, you know, go take advantage of the fact that Tom is 
is uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit here and showing you what he's currently pricing his material for. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. More people need to do that, frankly, so that we have a good idea of what our market is like and how things are affecting the different regions. So uh, I, 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 as as a fellow uh, lumber industry person, I sincerely appreciate that. Thank you, Tom. That's yes, sir. All of us there. Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I appreciate your your information, your time here, and um, uh, folks, if you haven't figured it out already, go buy some some lumber, but go to the wood yard and buy your lumber. That's right, Thanks, Tom. Yes, sir.